This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a new Army unit with new skill sets for soldiers. Army Chief of Staff General James McConville tells you how the force will build those units. An acquisition revolution at Homeland Security. The department's procurement leader on how she's trying to rewrite the rules for software buying. And the number one story of the week, a new leader and new oversight for the Pentagon Supply Chain Cyber Certifier. CMMC Board Chair Carlton Johnson on next steps for DOD security. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Army will build at least two multi-domain task forces in the Pacific and another one in Europe. Those MDTFs will provide long-range precision fires and intelligence, cyber, electronic warfare, space, and other capabilities. The Army will focus on how to staff those task forces as it stands them up. General James McConville is Chief of Staff of the Army. General McConville, welcome back on the program. Thanks for coming on. You're, doing these, you're, you're standing these task forces up at the same time that you're focused on transitioning from what you call an industrial age talent management system in the Army to a digital age uh, talent management system. How are you approaching that transformation in an environment that is, uh, is as tradition heavy as the Army is, sir? Well, I think, uh, first of all, recognizing uh, the importance of uh, technology and how it's going to affect the, uh, the future uh, warfighter or competition, if you will. And so what we realize is that we've had an industrial age personnel management system that has worked fine uh, over the last uh, many years. But if we move into the future, we move, need to move to a 21st century talent management system, which recognizes every soldier as an individual with their knowledge, skills, and behavior. And that way we can manage and incentivize them to have uh, the talents we need. And you talked about the multi-domain task force, uh, which is gonna have an intelligence, information operations, cyber electronic warfare, and, and space capabilities. And, and what we recognize in the future, we're gonna need soldiers uh, that can do artificial intelligence, that can do uh, data management that can write software uh, on the battlefield. So we're going to have to manage those soldiers in a special way. How much of that management do you have the license to be able to do by changing systems internally? How much of that has to come from OSD, the Secretary of Defense, from Congress? Well, I think we, ha we have the, the authorities to do it right now. We are doing it. What, what, what I want to put in place is, is a system uh, that can manage those soldiers the way we need to manage them. I, I, I suggest that right now in the Army, we, we manage soldiers uh, base, basically on their military occupational specialty uh, in their ranks. So they're a sergeant of engineers or they're a captain of infantry. And, and what we need to know is much more about the soldiers' knowledge, skills, behaviors, and even their preferences. What do they want to do? Where do they want to go? And, and that's the way we think we'll get the best results. 
how much of that will come from the individual soldier and how much of that will come come from who that soldier reports to? Well, it's a, it's a little of both. Um, you know, we're putting in place an integrated personnel and, and pay system uh, that is going to bring all three components of the United States Army together on one personnel system. And then the way we manage our troops uh, will be different than we manage uh, right now. We're just uh, standing up a we're standing up a software factory for the Army. We're, we're running a, a, a major effort called Project Convergence, where we're bringing together all our sensors, our shooters, and tied together with an integrated battle command system and, and artificial intelligence. And what we realized when we ran our first uh, demonstration of this capability is that we need uh, soldiers that can write software uh, on the battlefield. And, and so we've, we've reached out. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of soldiers that um, have that talent, that code, that write, want to write software, and now we're going to bring them in uh, to this capability, and then we need to have a management capability to make sure they're promoted and they're incentivized for their talents. Last time you were on the program, General, we talked about Project Convergence and how it eventually will integrate into JADC2. What are the implications for that, for that interaction with the other branches, for the joint force, in the way the Army internally evaluates its talent and determines who needs to be where and have what skills in what locations? Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely critical that all the services uh, come together and integrate uh, into a system which uh, we're actually calling CJADC2, Combined Joint All-Domain command and control. We, we put the C on there because as we take a look at uh, future uh, operations, we, we believe we'll always always be uh, with our allies and partners. So we, we need to bring them into the command and control system. And then with the joint force, we're always going to operate as a joint force. And we need uh, soldiers, non-commissioned officers and, and officers that understand the importance of the joint force and can operate within a joint force construct. Um, you mentioned the new talent management system, ATAP, that you're undertaking. Um, will that eventually become the ultimate um, manager, the ultimate environment for uh, determining where soldiers go and the skills that you want them to determine? Or will there be other measures of uh, what soldiers uh, can and, and should be capable of doing? Yeah, I think you, you mentioned the, you know, the, the Army talent talent alignment program that we're using right now. We, we see this as, as kind of like a 1-0 system. Uh, once we get the integrated uh, personnel and pay system uh, in place and we start to integrate artificial intelligence and some other uh, more efficient data management systems, I, I think what we're going to see is it, it's going to be uh, uh, people making decisions based on enabled uh, by the technology that we're going to have in place. And so will happen in the future if you're looking for a, a soldier with a certain skill set you'll be able to look across the entire army uh, regular army national guard and reserves and and put a feeler out there and say hey who wants to be a coder and then we'll be able to draw from the entire army we're doing that right now but it's really not at the at the efficiency that we would like to see general mcconville thank you very much for your time today i appreciate it sir well thank you francis it's great to be with you up next, a revolution for software buying at the Department of Homeland Security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new contract and a new way to look at getting hardware and software. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. The Department of Homeland Security has a new draft of its first Source 3 solicitation. The agency will use the $10 billion small business contract for IT software and hardware. Soraya Correa is Chief Procurement Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Soraya, welcome. Great to see you again. What did you and your colleagues at DHS learn from First Source 2 that you're applying to the new edition? Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, since First Source 2 was awarded back in 2012, technology has certainly evolved and changed somewhat. So we, we took into consideration several key factors. First and foremost, cybersecurity. We're obviously gonna be including some provisions that impact cybersecurity. We're gonna make sure that we take uh, cyber supply chain risk management into consideration as part of our evaluation. We also looked at on-ramping, the ability to, in, to continually add sources to the contract uh, to make sure that we stay fresh in terms of the number of companies that we have available, but the types of companies that are providing services and, and software and hardware under the first source two solicitation. And then streamlining the reporting, uh, feedback from industry. We obtained a lot of feedback from industry, especially our first source two vendors, as well as those companies that are interested in doing business with the department. And one of the things that we talked quite a bit about was streamlining the reporting requirements, making sure that we streamline not only the reporting post-award, but also even streamlining the proposal submission process. So you can count on that our new solicitation is going to take into consideration many of our procurement innovation lab techniques to streamline the evaluation process, but also making sure that we're only asking for the information that's necessary to conduct a good and solid evaluation. Uh, you, this solicitation says this, Soraya, DHS understands the first source two pricing approach was extensive and complex and seeks to take a different approach for first source three. What's the different approach that you're going to take in pricing? It's a great question. So based on the feedback that we received from industry and even from our own personnel internally, what we decided to do was take a more commercial approach to pricing. In other words, looking more at what are the kinds of discounts offered, uh, how the commercial pricing is structured and stay away from trying to do the uh, pricing at the piece part level. Over. Uh, you talked about on-ramping and the ability for companies to get involved in this, uh, get, to get on this contract uh, through the life of the contract. Is there an off-ramping uh, issue there too in case companies, uh, since this is a small business set aside, become so successful that they don't qualify as small businesses anymore? Well, I'd hate to say that they become so successful that they don't qualify. Hopefully they will always qualify. But uh, yes, we are looking at off-ramping so that at any point during the course of the life of the contract, we can off-ramp companies who perhaps are not performing well or who have outgrown the requirements of the solicitation. Uh, so that's an extremely important piece because we want to keep the companies fresh and viable. And again, I want to emphasize First Source 2, the reason it was so successful and the reason First Source 1 was so successful is because this is 100% small business set aside. And we want to make sure those small business dollars go to the small business companies. Over. How has software buying changed since First Source 2? One of the major changes is software as a service, licensing versus buying boxes. How, how do you approach that here? So here we created the maximum flexibility so that our components have the ability to order software as a service or buy enterprise licenses or even individual licenses. We wanted to provide maximum flexibility because we do use a variety of methods across the government and especially at the Department of Homeland Security. Another key feature in this procurement is we added another uh, North American industry classification code or NAICS code. Uh, we added the software publishing code and we did that so that we 
we could better track software, actually manage the reporting and tracking of software. In a, so in other words, in just instead of just having IT value-added resellers next code, we now have a second next code, which is software publishing. And that's going to give us a great deal more flexibility and it accounts for many changes that the Small Business uh, Administration has made in its rules. You mentioned you're incorporating uh, elements of the that you've learned from the Procurement Innovation Lab in, in this solicitation. How will what will that look like to the vendors who are responding to this? So it should look a little more streamlined. In other words, the, the process for bidding on the on the contracts should be a lot simpler. It should go a lot smoother, faster, uh, a little bit more efficient a little bit more effective and far more engaging and informative for the vendors. In other words, our procurement innovation lab techniques have focused on only asking for that information which is necessary using more of a phased approach to uh, to the evaluation of proposals so that we can begin to notify unsuccessful vendors as early as possible in the process and only engage with those vendors that have a likelihood of, of receiving award. And most importantly, more engagement with the vendors, making sure that we're communicating on a more recurring basis, not only about the evaluation, but also about the status of the procurement. Speaking of engagement with vendors, any theme to the comments that you got in the draft solicitation, Soraya? Sure. So some of the themes, uh, it, industry was very interested in security requirements that we might impose because obviously everybody's paying attention to the breaches that are happening out there and all the changes that we're undergoing. So very interested in what we were doing in the area of cybersecurity, contract structure, flexibility, and of course, pricing. Companies were very interested in understanding how we were going to evaluate their technical and their price proposals, as well as how we look to structure the contract and manage it going forward. Regarding security, are you implementing standards like a FedRAM standard, a CMMC standard, uh, or something that is in, in, internal to the department? A little bit of both, let me say it that way. Um, we are still looking at the comments that we received in, from industry and finalizing and so I don't want to get out ahead of our chief information officer because they have to review the solicitation. But the bottom line is we're incorporating a little bit of both. We want to make sure we protect the interests of the department, but we also protect the companies that are out there working with us. 30 seconds, Soraya, what's the timeline for seeing this on the street? Uh, our target right now is to issue the solicitation on or about April 20th. We're very excited uh, to get the solicitation out. We're in the final stages of review, and we do expect to hold another industry conference to talk about the solicitation in its final form, probably by the end of April, early May at the latest. Soraya Correa, thank you very much. Great to have you on the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Up next, the number one story of the week, the Defense Department taking another look at the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the review underway and the changes coming to the program. You're watching 7 News. And now the number one story of the week, the Chief Information Officer of the Air Force, Lauren Nausenberger, expressed some reservations this week about the Defense Department's big bet on securing its supply chain. Those comments follow a big hire by the board that oversees that big bet and a review from the top of the department. Carlton Johnson is chairman of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Body. Carlton, welcome back. A lot to cover. Let's start with that Industry Advisory Council that CMMC has established. What's the goal of that council and what's the feedback that you're looking for, Carlton? Excellent, and thank you for uh, having me back. 
uh, in chart, you know, we've always talked about communicating and educating and keeping the, the industry informed and just as important, letting them have a voice. That's exactly what the IAC is about. We're bringing the best and brightest together to talk not only about the implementation of CMMC, but to communicate any issues, concerns, and even look at opportunities to improve it over time and space. So we want the customer to have a direct interface with us and then work together with the government to make it even better. How will your IAC go about interacting with industry to get that feedback and put it into something that's useful for you and your colleagues on the board to be able to interpret and make changes based on? Excellent, excellent question. And as we continue to evolve this, the industry is really going to have the, the lift on how that, how that works. We want to make sure that whatever we do, there's value addedness from the industry perspective. And so the initial uh, conversation will be, what are the uh, commitments, what are the goals and objectives that we're going to have uh, as an industry team? And then together working with them to navigate that with our treasurer, uh, YG Chan, who's going to uh, facilitate that, to help them get that from ideas and thoughts and concepts to actual deliverables that they will uh, execute over time and space. One of the stakeholders, I imagine, in the work that that uh, IAC does is your new hire that I mentioned a moment ago, Matt Travis. Great background at CISA, at the Department of Homeland Security. What advantage do you think that gives him walking into this job to work with you and your colleagues? You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm extremely, extremely excited to have Matt Travis on board. His bona fides uh, far exceed him. Uh, his uh, the gravitas that he's bringing to this conversation is second to none. So he was absolutely the right hire to bring in to do this. And specifically to what you talked about, his extensive leadership in the system environment, his experience with government, his experience with industry, all that's going to come together to help operationalize and professionalize what we're doing with CMMC. And with the IAC, he's going to be able to get that additional insight from industry so that he can be more effective in this job. I'm very excited to have him on board. FedScoop report about his hiring says this, Travis will lead day-to-day -day operations at the AB, a job that's largely been filled by the AB's board of directors. That's you and your team in the nearly 15 months since it was incorporated. What will his hiring allow you and your colleagues to step back from on the board? And what will you continue to do, the, the board that is, that you've been doing all along? Uh, and again, another great question. And this is exactly what we have planned to do from day one. Uh, the board came together as a team of professional volunteers. And volunteer, uh, I should say, is is uh, not a uh, pay grade. Uh, it is, a, excuse me, a volunteerism is a pay grade versus a skill level. And these people have done a lot of volunteerism to get this up and running. That said, that's not sustainable over long term. Bringing Matt and his team on board does exactly that. Allows us to sustain operations, to scale up operations so that we can continue to deploy CMMC. And then the board of directors transforms from the board of director doers to board that governs. And we provide that strategic oversight, guidance, and where necessary support to Matt so he can deploy CMMC and meet not only the obligations of the contract, but more importantly, help defend the uh, defense industrial base. The board and no doubt Mr. Travis will be interacting greatly with De uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks and her team as she undertakes the review that I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, Carlton. What's your sense of what that review will encompass? 
do you know so far what that review will encompass and what do you want and hope to demonstrate to the team that uh, represents Secretary Hicks in that review? And, and, uh, what, and I think you'll respect uh, my answer here. Uh, because that's a government action, I defer a lot of those to the government. What I will say from the AB perspective is, as always, we're going to remain transparent. Uh, everything that we do is open and available to the government to understand what we're doing and to help make it better. So anything that we can do to support the effort to communicate and educate and then follow through with the deliverables of the contract, but also to inform the administration and team of what we're doing and how we can make it better, extremely open to anything that can help us do things at the next level of excellence. We have a little bit more than a minute left, Carlton. What's your timeline look like? Um, what's the impact on that timeline of any of the things that we've talked about? The review from the Deputy Secretary's office, the hiring of Matt Travis, and so on. Are you accelerating the timeline that you envisioned the last time you were on the program? Are you staying the course? What does that look like? As of today, uh, as of today, I am staying the course. I say that because everything we've been doing to date has been in line with the timelines we've been given and, and worked with the DOD. That said, uh, if that needs to accelerate, we're prepared to do what we need to do to accelerate. Uh, the main thing is that we want to make sure we stay in line with the commitments that we promise, we deliver on what we promise, and we, uh, uh, at the end of the day, we meet the uh, obligations of the contract. That requires a uh, ability to be agile, but also ongoing conversation. And we're staying in lockstep with the government with those conversations. Carlton Johnson, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you back on the program. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you can get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. To get it, you just text GovMatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you, we got to talk to you again. But uh, here's, 
it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the the mantra of transforming so what we saw in some of the early um fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing and it really took them a long time to start issuing them um but they're they're, they're they were basically asking for like for like services and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming and it didn't the, many of the fair opportunities unfortunately did not show the the vision for transforming SD-WAN was emerging so it was a tough call it was a you know we've got to get this contract new contract out because the old contract is aging it's expiring it's got its uh, limited time frame so it was an interesting um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to to uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider. Why does that matter to agencies, and and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept concept is really helpful because the the pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today, every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they, that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting, obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the, lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, 
offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.